I invite you to turn to Psalm 100. Is can honestly say it was God's providence that our scripture reading and this psalm were together. I didn't realize it when I chose it, and then I thought, oh, well, that worked out well. But we'll take a, a little bit deeper look uh, than, the, than just reading this morning. Hear now the word of the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. Father, we ask now that we would know you in such a way that we would always be confessing uh, your, your wonderful, bountiful love for us, and we would give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's in the spirit of thanksgiving that I thought it'd be fitting for us to consider this psalm. It's a short psalm, as you know. It's only five verses, and its purpose is really clear. Psalm 100 is the only psalm in the Psalter that is identified as a psalm for giving thanks. If you look in your Bible, right under the number 100 or next to it, you'll find the words, a psalm for giving thanks. Uh, there's debate on the titles, if they're inspired or not, but in either case, this psalm was written for the corporate gathering of God's people as a way of expressing thankfulness to God and for God. Now, there are many psalms that do this. Psalm 107, if uh, the Lord wills, we'll look at next Sunday. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, it says there, for He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And I could go on and on and on. But this psalm, Psalm 100, is the only psalm that is explicitly identified as a psalm for giving thanks. It is a call, literally, to the whole earth, and particularly to the congregation. And it's a call to shout to God, to serve God, and to sing to God with a heart full of exuberant joy and gratitude. And this past Wednesday at our meal of thanks, uh, Nathan reminded us that giving thanks is, is a hallmark of the Christian life. It's, it's something we are to do. We should be abounding in thanksgiving, overflowing in thanksgiving, not just this time of year. Uh, but always giving thanks directs our thoughts uh, away from ourselves and, and away from any suffering or, or frustrations we may have, and, and, it, and it puts our attention to God and His goodness. And so it's hard to complain when we're giving thanks with a joyful heart. And so we should overflow with thanksgiving, and this psalm is written to do that. Now, the psalm itself contains seven imperatives, that is, seven commands, as well as two explanations as to why we should give thanks. There's only four stanzas. The first calls us to worship God, verses 1 and 2. 
The second calls us to know God, verse 3. The third stanza calls us to worship God, verse 4. And the fourth stanza calls us to know God. Worship, know, worship, know. And that, and that pattern tells us something vitally important when it comes to giving thanks. True praise of God goes hand in hand with true knowledge of God. For us to enter his gates with thanksgiving, for us to give thanks to him, we need to know him. John Piper put it this way, this is why we were created and redeemed, to know and enjoy God. And then he says this, with the knowing is the foundation of the enjoying. He, he goes on to explain, he says, exaltation, praise, exaltation that does not flow from education, affections that do not flow from knowing, feelings that do not flow from thinking. He says that they are hollow and rootless, noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. God is not glorified, he says, by artificial and empty passions. He says, true delight in God is rooted in true knowledge, rooted in true doctrine. God-centered worship is rooted in God-centered education. And so what's the point he's making? He's saying, look, you cannot worship God fully if you don't know him biblically. And, and so this psalm is here to help. When you look at the psalm in verses 1 and 2, that first stanza, uh, there's this threefold invitation. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with thanksgiving, with singing, that is. That's three imperatives. That means they're commands, three commands. And, and, and each command draws us closer and closer to the Lord. He begins with this joyful noise. Literally, it reads, shout to the Lord, cry out to the Lord. And it seems strange. Are we just to be shouting to God, shouting to Jesus? And the answer is yes and no. That Hebrew word originally meant a glad shout, such as loyal subjects might utter when the king appears before them. And so if they saw the king, it would, they would shout out, and the emphasis being on the gladness, the idea being that people of God are to worship him loudly because they are happy with him. See, Spurgeon said, our happy God should be worshipped by a happy people. A cheerful spirit is in keeping with his nature, his acts, and the gratitude which we should cherish for his mercies. And, and so we're to shout the Lord. We're to have gladness before the Lord. Well, second, we're to serve the Lord with gladness. Behind this action of shouting to God... Uh, joyfully, there must be a proper attitude. And so the psalmist says, serve the Lord with gladness. Uh, that, that word serve means minister. In worship, like the priest before the altar, we to give ourselves to God. It, it's an act of ministry to do this, an act of service. But I think it's more than that. Remember what Paul said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, worship leads to service, and, and true service is worship. Jesus said, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. We just talked about it. Vicki just bare testimony to, to sharing these coats with children in the community. When we do that in the name of the Lord, when the righteous ask, when do we do this, Jesus says, and the king will answer them, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. When we gave those coats, if we did it in the name of the Lord, we were doing it unto God. Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. When, when, when we feed the hungry in Jesus' name, we're serving him. When we give a drink in Jesus' name, we're worshiping him. When we welcome the stranger in Jesus' name, we're ministering to them. When we, when we clothe the naked, visit the sick, visit the prisoner, and we do it in his name, it, it, it's giving praise to God. We're called to worship God by devoting ourselves to service both by praising Him according to His Word and by serving others with gladness. And so there are the first two. Third, verse 1 states, we are to come into His presence with singing. And then skip down to verse 4. We're commanded to enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him, bless His name. Note, note the progression here. We, we started with praising in all the earth, all the earth. But now we're, we're in the sacred assembly. Yes, we are to worship Him loudly in all the earth. Yes, we are to worship Him through service, but we're also to worship Him in the gathered worship service where, where God's people come together. Entering His gates and courts refers to the Israelites entering the temple for worship. And so do you see a distinction is made? One writer says, in all acts of religious worship, whether in secret, in our families, we come into God's presence and we serve Him. But it's in the public worship especially that we enter into His gates and His courts. We, we, it's in the public worship of God in the church that God promises to especially meet with His people. And it's there that we do together with hearts full of joy and thanksgiving. We give thanks to Him. We praise Him. We bless His name. Now, this isn't just simply a way of saying, you know, see, it's good to go to church. That's true. But it, it teaches us that there's a special aspect of thanksgiving that involves the whole people of God. It's just not enough to do it privately. And individually or with our family. We've been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. When, when you were redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, when you left your life of sin and you were united to Christ, you were adopted into the family of God. You've heard sermons on this before, and this psalm calls us together as a family to worship Him. You see, this psalm, more than any other, was probably used as an invitation from one Jewish worshiper to another to come to the holy city, to come to Jerusalem, come to the temple, to join in worship and thank God for all He has done. 
It, it was a way of speaking to each other in, 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 in order to praise God. And so how do we give thanks to God? Well, one way is inviting others to join us to give thanks to them. Remember how the psalm began? Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. All the earth. James Boyce says this psalm is an invitation to all the people of the world to praise God in his courts, in the church. And so we are to come into his presence with singing. So let me just summarize. We looked at the first and the third stanza and six of the imperatives already. We make a joyful noise. We, we serve the Lord. We come into his presence with singing. We enter his gates, that is, the church, with thanksgiving. We give thanks to him. We bless his name. There, there, there's what the psalm is saying. Now, the main application here for us is, is obvious. We're to shout with gladness and gratitude. We're to serve with gladness and gratitude. And we're to sing with gladness and gratitude. In all of life, we're to do those three things, but also in the corporate worship of God. But there is another application, maybe a little less obvious, but I want to point it out. I've, I've hinted at it in other messages. If you're going to be obedient, to Psalm 100, to these commands. You need to serve him, that you know. You need to praise him, that's good. But you must do it vocally, particularly the second one, praising him, vocally. You are being commanded, commanded to shout and sing, not to admire and listen. If you're not vocally singing, you are not worshiping him when we sing songs of praise. Your voice must be heard. There's nothing wrong with listening to the choir. There's nothing wrong with, wrong with listening to the bell choir or a soloist. We can worship God while we're doing that. That is true. That is worship. But we are also commanded to sing to God. And for us to sing to God, we need to engage our vocal, vocal cords. And, and, and I realize, you know, some of us do it better than others. I, I, I was told that sometimes I stand a little too close to that mic up there during the hymns, and people recognize that, and it ain't good, but, but I'm called to do it, right? I'm called to praise the Lord, not whisper to the Lord, not meditate silently to the Lord in this context, but shout to the Lord. See, you singing out loud from a joyful heart, as good as or bad as it may be, is what God desires. It's what he delights in. And see, remember this too. It's also an encouragement to the person near you. Despite how you sound, it's an encouragement. You're singing to them the truth, as it were. See, they're hearing you praise God, which encourages them to praise God. I hear you, it encourages me, and vice versa. They're hearing from your lips the truth of the gospel as you sing it out. They're hearing from your lips how thankful you are to God for all he has done. You know, part of the things we do here in our service are not, we don't just do them because they were always done. We, we purposely make a decision to do responsive readings. Why? So we're all participating in worship verbally. And so the question, one writer says, is not do you have a voice? The question is, do you have a song to sing? If you're redeemed by Christ, 
If you've been redeemed by, uh, by uh, the cross, then you have a song to cry out and sing. That's what he's saying. But why? Why should you sing? Why should you shout? Why should you serve? And that leads us to our last two stanzas, stanzas two and five, and our final point. We talked about exaltation. We need to exalt the Lord and praise him. But now we look at education. In verse 3 and 5, we read, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And now verse 5, For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. It's no small thing that verse 2 ends by saying, Come into his presence with singing, and then immediately is followed up with, Know the Lord, that he is God. Singing, no. Serving with gladness, you need to know. Shouting joyfully, no. By, by including that word no, to know, K-N-O-W, the psalm tells us that our thanksgiving to God must be intelligent. It, 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 we must know who we're thanking. You must know why you are singing, know why you are serving, know why you are shouting. Remember the Apostle Paul in Acts 17, he, he goes to the Greeks and this unknown God is there. They have all their different gods and one's labeled unknown God. And then Paul stands up in Mars Hill to address them and he said, what you worship is something unknown. I am proclaiming to you. You have this unknown God. Let me proclaim who they are. Let me, let me give you knowledge, intelligence. You can't rightly thank God. You can't rightly worship God if he's unknown to you. And so what is it about God that we should know? Well, there's a lot. But our verses here gives us three answers. We're told he is God. We're told that he is creator. And he is our redeemer. That's what verse 3 tells us. He is God, he is creator, he is redeemer. Verse 5 gives us three more. He is good, he is loving, and he is faithful. And so six, six truths we learn about God in these two verses. Uh, when, I, when I talk about this, and I've mentioned this in other sermons, you've got to know him. I've given illustrations of, of people saying, I never knew these things about God. And uh, Obviously, we don't, we're not going to exhaust our knowledge of God. I don't think we'll do that even in eternity. We, he's God. He's infinite. He's eternal. But, but the more you know, and here are six things. Let me quickly walk through them. Know that the Lord, He is God. The word Lord here is Yahweh. It's all caps in your Bibles. That name refers to a specific covenant-keeping God. It's the covenant-keeping God who brought the people of Israel out of Egypt and was faithful to them through the centuries in the promised Messiah. And in other words, the, the God we worship is the one true God. There are no others. He is the absolute undisputed authority and power over all the earth. And this God, He is our God, which is the second thing we see. He made us. He is the creator. We're the creation. We're not self-sufficient. We are relying upon him for everything. Every breath we take is dependent upon God. He made us. He is the creator. Third, he's our redeemer. He not only made us, but we now belong to him. Beyond creation, there's a redemption. 
And, and our relationship to God goes beyond him simply forming us out of the dust. He does that. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture, says verse 3. That this verse referred to Israel, and now it refers to the church. It, it includes all those who have called upon the Lord, both Jew and Gentile. This all-powerful, self-sufficient, covenant-making creator God is also our shepherd. He cares for us. Psalm 23. We've read that several times this week at funerals. Psalm 23. He provides green pasture and still water and protection from wolves and guidance through dangerous valleys. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is my shepherd. And so verse 3 here stresses the authority and power of God. It stresses his lordship, that we belong to him, the fact that he made us and redeemed us. That's verse 3. But verse 5 does something different. It doesn't focus on what God has done. It now focuses on who he is. And this is very good news. Why? Because we're told he is good. It's important to know. The goodness of God is seen in his moral character and in his benevolence toward us. Second, he's loving. The love spoken of here is covenantal love, a bond sealed in blood. Our, our, God, our good God has bound us to himself. He is loving. And his steadfast love, his covenantal love, it endures forever. He's good. He's loving. He's faithful. He will never revoke or abandon his covenant. When he makes a promise, the God that we worship can be counted on. When he makes a promise and he speaks to us, he can be trusted. And we can also count on him to remain this forever. As Spurgeon said, as our fathers found him faithful, so with our sons and their seed forever. Moses found him faithful, you can find him faithful. He is faithful to all generations. Good God, loving God, faithful God, that is our God. They're the things that are brought up here. Now, as I said, this is a short psalm, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this. The psalmist calls us to the loudest praise. He calls us to shout to the Lord. He calls us to serve the Lord. He calls us to sing to the Lord. All of those are acts of worship. And, and, and this is no surprise. Why? Because who he is. It makes sense now that we're to shout. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. He is our master. He's our creator. He's our redeemer. He's our shepherd. He is good to us. He is loving. He is faithful. And he will be that forever. And did you notice? Every one of those points, every single one of those points are true of Jesus. He is Yahweh. I and the Father are one, he says in John 10. He is our master and Lord. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, Romans 10. Jesus is the creator, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, Colossians 1.16. He is our redeemer, 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who's hanged on a tree, says Galatians 3.13. Did you ever stop to think, I forget if it was Nathan I was talking to, who I was talking to, that when Jesus in the incarnation was being born, that is, the God-man, he was also upholding all the world. It's a mystery. It's pretty fascinating. But God... Jesus is our Redeemer and our Creator. Uh, He is our shepherd. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John 10. He is good, Paul says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the works we've done in righteousness, but according to Jesus' own mercy. He is loving. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He is faithful. Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, Hebrews chapter 2. All this is true of Jesus. He is God, he's master, he's creator, he's redeemer, he's shepherd, he's good, he's loving, he is faithful. And so if that is your God, if that's the Lord and master that you serve, if you have no other savior, not yourself, not some other God, not your works, but Jesus alone, if that is the God you're being called to worship, a God who created you and rules over you, a God who will never cease to deal with you in a good, loving, and faithful manner, a God who became flesh and dwelt among us for your sake and for your salvation, then I can say this with complete confidence that both in good times and bad, he is worthy of your unending praise. And so what are you to do? Well, you're to enter his gates with thanksgiving. And you're to enter his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you for these marvelous truths we learn in this very short psalm. We thank you that you are good, loving, and faithful toward us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.